I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. V-Day for the UK as vaccine rollout begins, with an Irish grandmother being the world's first patient to receive the Pfizer vaccine. Closer to home, our health minister delivers a plan for vaccination allocation strategy. On our first panel tonight is Neil Richmond, Fine Gael TD, and Dr Rachel McLaughlin, Professor in Immunology at Trinity College Dublin. Also, deal reached on goods crossing the Irish Sea, but post-Brexit trade deal still in doubt as Boris Johnson heads to Brussels for last-ditch talks. And what would a no-deal mean for consumers and businesses here? Later, we'll be joined by Virgin Media News economics correspondent Paul Colgan. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Our first guests this evening, Neil Richmond, the Fine Gael TD, and Dr. Rachel McLaughlin, Professor in Immunology at Trinity College Dublin. And I'm going to start with you because just how big a day is it today when people are being vaccinated against COVID-19? Well, it's a huge day and a day, I suppose, back last April, May time, we, we weren't sure was, was when it was going to come. So it's fantastic that before the end of the year that we've managed to see the first patient receive the first vaccine. Does that worry you though in any bit that this may have been a little bit rushed? Because there are sceptics there who are concerned. How was this done so quickly? Do we know the possible side effects of this vaccine? Well, we have to trust our regulatory authorities and the MHRA in the UK um, have approved this vaccine for use in the UK and that's why it was able to be rolled out. And while the process may seem fast, it's no less stringent than it would, be, would have been for any other vaccine or medicine. But how do they manage to do it so quickly? So the regulatory authorities, what they, they've done what's known as a rolling review. So they've been getting information from the vaccine companies on a rolling basis as it became available. So it wasn't just on the 30th of November that they received all of the information. So they've, they've been doing checks and analysis on data already. They've gone as far as gone out to visit the manufacturing companies where the vaccines are going to be made, looked at the labs where the original data was generated. So then when the final data was submitted, I suppose they were primed and, and ready to go. Yeah, but yet the EU's EMA and also mm -hmm. the FDA in the United States still hasn't come to a final decision. They waited and the British have jumped ahead. So had the British taken a risk? Well, I think that the... The, the, the regulatory authorities in the UK, are, are they're going to be no less stringent than the EMA or the FDA. Perhaps it was a shame that it didn't all come at the same time, because I think this has led us to having these conversations. I don't think they're warranted, and I'm, and I'm confident, we have to wait and see, obviously, but I'm confident that the EMA will come to the same decision as the MHRA did. But the fact that they did 
go ahead, I suppose, has led people to, to question a process that probably doesn't need to be questioned, but it's just a perception that the public may have now. So we haven't approved any drugs for use in Ireland yet, although there are various quantities and different types of drugs on order for use in January onwards, hopefully. What did you make of the rollout strategy announced by the government and by the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, today, which seems to have less 15 different categories of people who would get vaccinated at different times? Well, I actually really welcomed the fact that they went into that much detail for people because I think it's really important to manage people's expectations. This is a great day that the, the first vaccine was administered, but we've a long road ahead of us. It's going to take a long time to get the vaccine um, dispatched to uh, all of the people who need it. And I thought that it was really, really useful to see the list of categories so that people can figure out where they fit and their, and their expectations are managed. I suppose, Neil Richmond, they know where they fit, but then they want to know at what time are they likely to get it? If you're in Group 4 or Group 7 or Group 10, when are you going to get the drugs? What are the ambitions in relation to that? Well, that'll be the great challenge because obviously administering the drug, getting it through the systems, ensuring the supply chain, the cold chain is there, is the big challenge. We hope to be able to join with other European colleagues in rolling these out after the AMA, I think in the next 21 days, or hopefully to give this permission. We've already signed up to the EU's pre-purchasing system, so five different different drugs, two of which have been approved, one of which the same in the UK, the Pfizer one, and getting that rollout. And that will be the main plan to start off. But I think when we look at the UK, and it was brilliant, it was a real victory for science to see the first inoculations today, but it's actually quite a small quantity. You know, it's just the start of it. And realistically, it'll be quite some time, quite some months before it really works out. We have to get the most vulnerable and at risk, the people who account for 56% of the deaths from COVID inoculated first. And that will all come through the special task force that has been set up. We've had, I think, close to a million doses of the flu vaccine administered this year via GP surgeries and pharmacies. Is that going to be the way to do it this time or is that going to be possible given the cold storage that's required for at least for the Pfizer drug? It's possible. Bear in mind, the Pfizer drug and the next drug that's been approved, they're both two dosage drugs, but whereas the other three are all single dosage. It's looking at also the aspects of where we start off first. It is the care home. So can we do that in homes? Because they're obviously not people who are necessarily going to be able to be brought to the GP surgery or wherever, wherever else to get inoculated. So that would be the next stage of it. But the initial... the the hope, and this is something the task force are working on, is that it'll be able to be brought out in a way to be done in a centralised place for those homes. How long do you think, Rachel, could it take to actually get everyone who needs to be vaccinated vaccinated? Could it be take six to nine months? I would say so. I think we're looking at 2021 to be the year of vaccination. And that hopefully if the approval comes at the end of this month, the 29th of December is when the EMA are, are speculating that they're going to have an answer. Um, I would hope then that the, the, the most vulnerable groups in the prioritisation list will start to receive their vaccines, I guess, early in the new year. But for the entire population, for to work through all of the different groups, it's, it's going to take the, mo the majority of 2021, I would imagine. Why so? Well, because of the, 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 the comments that you made, I mean, it's a logistically very difficult task to administer mass vaccination to the entire population. We have to figure out the logistics of getting it to the various people who need it. And then we have to make sure that the people take the vaccine. And that's going to be the next challenge is ensuring that the public buy into this vaccination Why, strategy. How much of a concern do you have that the public won't? Well, I think we know from every single vaccine that exists 
there is vaccine hesitancy surrounding the, the use of vaccines. So there's no reason to think that it's going to be any different for the, the COVID-19 vaccine. And it's important that we communicate clearly to people that the vaccine is safe and that it's effective and that it's working and, and alleviate people's fears. So Neil, how's government going to do that? Because there are going to be a significant, perhaps, cohort of people who say, well, I'm not going to believe what the government tells me. I'm not going to believe what big business tells me either if they're going to be making money out of this. Well, first and foremost, we're going to lead by example. We're all going to take the vaccine when it's appropriate and when it's available to us. To his credit, Alan Kelly from the opposition Labour Party has invited all Oireachtas members and MEPs to sign up a pledge. I've done it myself. I'll take the vaccine as soon as it comes to my category of risk. And it's a really detailed public health campaign to encourage people to take up the vaccine like we see with other vaccines through the various age groups. There will be those nefarious people who will spread the fake news and we'll also need to counter that both online and through the various other mediums. Okay, people are also wondering as well, Rachel, about the effectiveness of this vaccine, not just in protecting the person who gets it from developing COVID-19, but the possibility that they could still actually transfer the virus to somebody else. If you've had the vaccine and you can't get sick, how can you make somebody else sick? Well, all, of the, all the trials have told us so far is that the vaccine prevents you from getting the disease. The trials were only designed to answer that question. We don't know if the vaccine prevents you from taking the virus into your body. We know they'll prevent you from getting sick, but you may still have the virus in your body and therefore you may be able to spread that virus. And we won't have the answers to that until enough people are vaccinated and we, do, we follow them up and we do the analysis. But would that then mean that you'd have to vaccinate children as well who may not actually get sick, but who could be transmitters of the virus? Quite possibly. And I mean, the, I noticed that on the prioritisation list, children were listed as, as the kind of the bottom end of, of the list of people. And the Pfizer vaccine is, is currently gone into trial in, um, in, in younger children. So that information will become available to, to ensure that it is safe for children. And long term, yes, we may need to also vaccinate children. And then what about how long this vaccination will provide protection for? Because those of us who get the flu vaccination every year have to get it every year. It only lasts for a particular season. Is that likely to be the case that this is going to be part of an annual ritual in the future? Well, that's the, the second big question surrounding this vaccine and, and any of the vaccines is how long will the immunity last? And we don't have the answer to that question. And that's a frustrating thing, I'm sure, for a lot of people to hear. But the reality is the only way you can know how long the immunity is going to last is to wait for the time to elapse. And that would be the only way we're going to be able to find out. But if it is a case that it is the type of vaccine that we need to get on an annual basis, like the flu vaccine, it's still a fantastic tool for us to have. Uh, to allow us to return to some sort of normality. What about security of supply, given that this is not going to be manufactured in this country? Pfizer has major manufacturing operations, but they're doing other things. They won't be making the vaccine. What is your concern, or do you have concerns about sufficient numbers being manufactured and then distributed? We're hearing, for example, now today, that in the United States, Trump is thinking of a ministerial or an executive order to prevent the export of the drug until all Americans have been vaccinated. Well, thankfully, we're not in the United States and we have signed up to a system with the European Union whereby Ireland will be given um, actually 
proportionally more vaccines than we have per population. It's 1% of the total that has been purchased or pre-purchased by the European Union. We're very lucky. I think one of the a lot of people remark about the UK going ahead. Ireland probably wouldn't have been able to obtain those vaccines if it wasn't for the fact that we are in the European Union. There is a rollout schedule there. We're paying. Yeah, but the rollout, how about coming across the land bridge from the UK? I mean, could there be an awful bitter irony in this and that we have the supplies due to come from the European Union and we could end up deal or no deal with Brexit, having delays coming across the land bridge via Britain? Well, the land bridge will still be open, albeit there'll be concerns about delays. And regardless of any medicines, the government does maintain a watch list of all medicines, be it due to the pandemic or, or Brexit, that need to have a watch. And this isn't necessarily one that's going to be in there. The supply chain will be guaranteed by the European Union and from where it comes in terms of the, the production methods. I have I've no fears about that, and I don't think Brexit will impede this in any which way. Now, would you have any fears, Rachel, that there could be a degree of complacency, that when people feel that some people are being vaccinated, even if they haven't been, that it all becomes an awful lot safer and that they have to be less concerned with their hand washing, mask wearing, maintaining social distancing? Well, I think this is the, the negative side to today's great news um, is in the lead up to Christmas, people may interpret this news as, you know, the vaccine's coming, that's great, we can let our guard down. We can't let our guard down. The prioritisation list has shown us that a lot of people are going to have to wait a significant amount of time before they get their vaccine. So we have to continue with the behaviours that we have adopted until the, the population is fully vaccinated. Yeah, but there are various commercial interests at the moment who are starting to advertise things for next year, such as concerts all the way through next year, on the basis that, give us your money now, you'll have a ticket to go and see something next year year. Is it guaranteed that we're going to be able to go to all of those things that we enjoy so much next year? Absolutely not. At the end of the day, the basic health advice remains social distancing, hand washing and everything else. And we've seen throughout the past nine months, events have been advertised and cancelled, but we've made sure that consumer rights are protected. But do proceed with caution. We're, a lot, we're not finished with COVID for a long time. OK, let's move north now. And Alison Morris, columnist with the Irish News, joins us now via Skype. Alison, it certainly has been a momentous day in Northern Ireland with the first vaccines administered. So what's the mood been like about all that? Well, I think it's it's the first time we've really had some positive news since March. So at 8 o'clock this morning, the, the first person, it was actually the nurse who is going to be managing the Trust's vaccination centre, Joanna um, Sloan, took her vaccination and that was filmed. And then after that, the staff got to work. And so at close of business today, they're telling us around 250 people have already been vaccinated. They are mainly residents of care homes and the staff who work in those care homes. So getting to those really vulnerable groups first, and that's going to bring down, obviously, the, the strain on the, the health service and the strain on the hospital hospital beds from those very vulnerable patients. So it's all moving very quickly. I think that most of us are feeling like this could be the beginning of the end after such a, a terrible year. I can't imagine people are relaxing though because the figures are still quite bad out of the north, aren't they? The amount of confirmed new cases again today far in excess of what we have here in the south. They are. There was 351 new cases confirmed today. And what you have to, to remember as well is that the Stormont Assembly decided to go for a second lockdown, which will end this Friday. But before they did that, they had a seven-day um, sort of relaxation of the, the, um, the restrictions. And that is obviously we know that cases are usually two weeks behind. So we're possibly seeing the result of that relaxation for seven days when people rushed out to do Christmas shopping and we're seeing queuing outside large, large stores. I think that we're possibly seeing the effect of that now. 
but uh, most people, including hospitality, who are preparing to open on Friday, I think have themselves prepared for a second lockdown, possibly come January, as a result of whatever's going to happen over the Christmas period. Is there any political blame been attached to the second wave of outbreaks that you've had? There was massive political blame because of the delay that took place in trying to get these restrictions agreed through the executive. So there was at one stage we had, you know, a DUP minister using a cross-community veto to stop restrictions that the chief medical officer was saying was essential. So basically, if you remember back to the start of the pandemic, ourselves, you know, north and south were more or less aligned. Within a day or two of each other, the restrictions would have changed. They would have either tightened or been lifted within within a few days of each other. That started to then grow apart. You know that the south took action and went for that that six-week break, whereas up, up north there was a sort of half in half out, semi-lockdown, hospitality closed, close contact retail closed, but everything else opened and functioning as normal. And that really wasn't working. Um, I think that that delay, there, there will be, you know, come the time when we do look back on COVID and should there ever be an inquiry into what happened, I think that that delay will feature in it because we were told that the chief medical officer at that stage was saying we need a six-week full lockdown, everything but schools. And that's not what happened. And Alison, just to finish, you mentioned about the alignment between North and South. It was also noticeable that in the early days of dealing with the crisis, unionists and nationalist politicians seem to be getting on quite well, working hand in glove. That seems to have completely deteriorated, hasn't it? Oh, the, the weeds fell off that wagon in about June, I would say, June or July. At the start, we had a really united front. We had, you know, our first and deputy first minister, Michelle O'Neill and Arling Foster, using each other's first names, doing, you know, socially distanced press conferences together. All that fell by the wayside. The, the communications at the minute are terrible. We're very rarely seeing the ministers coming out and fronting up their decisions. We know that behind the scenes there's real tensions around the executive table. That's not to say that everyone doesn't want to get a grip on the pandemic, but I think that the old sort of um, gaps that you can see within that politics, you know, the old rivalry that existed before, as we get closer to the end of this pandemic and start looking towards the future, you can see other issues such as legacy and all sorts of other unresolved sores are starting to come to the fore and there's definitely some tensions now at the executive table which if we think back to the start of the pandemic they were really keen to show a united front and I think that's possibly also the reason why we still have such high case numbers our messaging was so bad and so mixed you know we didn't have a, a united political front giving us one complete message for people to stick to and so the restrictions became quite confusing people started getting confused as to what they were meant to be doing or not meant to be doing and I, I think that that had a negative impact on the control of the virus up north. Alison Morris, as ever, thank you very much for joining us on The Tonight Show. Neil, I'll just go back to you, Neil. How frustrating has it been for the government here that things have been done differently in the north and that we may have suffered the consequences of their much bigger numbers? It certainly provided a challenge. I actually raised this with the Taoiseach this afternoon in the Dáil that we need the North is due to loosen its restrictions at the end of this week and there has been inconsistencies but when we talk about the vaccine rollout there will be a lot of people crossing the border who live in the Republic but work in an NHS hospital in the North and will have got their vaccine so there's an increasing impetus to get that level of coordination but of course as Alison pointed out the political ramifications of those in Northern Ireland who want to follow London's lead where we see division as it is and those who want to follow Dublin's lead. But when the dust settles, would this not suggest that this has been the greatest example of why we need a united Ireland? 
Well, it's certainly an example why we need that good um, working relationship and hopefully protecting the all-island economy and society will be something... No, I'm going good. further and suggesting that we need one jurisdiction on this island so that we can deal with health crises and other crises in the future. Well, I think before we get there, we need to realise the potential of the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement and have it as a matter of course that the Taoiseach speaks to the First Minister and Deputy First Minister every week as well as the Health Ministers. How frustrating is it to people in medicine and science when you see different countries doing different things? I mean it is frustrating because the, the, the big challenge we had when this pandemic hit was would it be possible to make a vaccine and we are close to seeing that we may have achieved that. So for things to go wrong at this stage due to logistics and due to political reasons, and, and it would be very frustrating. You know, we, we have to get it right now. OK, thank you very much for that, Dr Rachel McLaughlin, for being with us this evening. Fine Gael's Neil Richmond is staying with us because after the break, as the trade talks come down to the wire, can a Brexit, post-Brexit, trade deal be reached? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. Neil Richmond, the Fine Gael TD, is still with us. And we're also joined by Verona Murphy, Independent TD, and also by former MEP Ben Habib, who is chairman of Unlocked and Brexit Watch. He joins us via Skype. And um, We'll start with you, Neil, in relation to this. Is there a sense that Boris is bending, that the British are buckling, that by agreeing now that despite their threats, they will adhere to the Northern Ireland Protocol, that they're showing signs that they realise they have to do a deal? I wouldn't necessarily uh, look too much into it. What we've seen today is the British government merely implementing what they agreed to do in international law. Hang on, um, they've been threatening that they wouldn't do it. They were putting in legislation to effectively break that international treaty. Absolutely, and the amendments um, introduced the Internal Market Bill and indeed the Finance Bill were absolutely appalling and they should never have been done. But we have a situation now where Boris Johnson will meet President von der Leyen tomorrow evening in Brussels and they will take stock of where we are and where the gaps remain. I would not be in any way overconfident of where we are. There are still substantial gaps. And what we really now need now is some tangible movement from the British government to see if we can get to a position. Because to be honest, it is in everybody's interest that we do get a Brexit deal. Ben, you've been tweeting earlier today that it's sickening to see the British PM tail between their legs, begging bowl in hand, going to Brussels to seek concessions. So shouldn't Boris well, it, Johnson it is, be going to is. Brussels? 
It, it is utterly sickening. I mean, why is it that the prime minister who said back in February as part of our negotiating mandate that if we didn't have a deal that suited the United Kingdom by the end of June, we would go for WTO? He then extended that to July. He then extended it to October. And in October, he said to the British people on a public announcement that if the EU didn't concede its position on EU state aid law, the so-called level playing field, fishing quotas and the governance of the new trade deal, that frankly talks would be off and we would again head to WTO. But here we are two months later, just days away from the end of the transition period. And he is now he is undoubtedly buckling, by the way, just to answer your question, giving way on the internal market bill, not holding firm on the red lines that he said he would hold, hold firm on. And in fact, rushing off to Brussels in the same ignominious man manner that David Cameron and Theresa May did before him. And they came back empty handed and either he is going to end up conceding or, or he's going to come back empty handed. Empty -handed. His bluff has been called, so perhaps. Wasn't that utterly predictable, given the position that he was taking? It was, uh, it was entirely predictable. Anyone who read the withdrawal agreement before he signed up to it would have known that the Northern Irish Protocol required a border down the Irish Sea, EU state aid law to apply in Northern Ireland, and VAT and excise duties pursuant to EU law. And the fact that members of the ERG, members of the Conservative Party, and it, deems, it seems the Prime Minister didn't appreciate what it was they were signing up to, that's what created the predictability of the predicament in which they now face, you know, now, in which they now find themselves. And actually, if they read the document, if they'd understood what it meant, he wouldn't have had to put forward the internal market bill, which, by the way, as you know, the British government admitted was a breach of international law. And again, we have that embarrassment of having to first seek to break international law and then reverse away from it when they clearly haven't got the courage to do it. It's an absolute sham. The United Kingdom has been humiliated through this process by the prime minister. He called his own bluff. Ronald Murphy, what do you make of that assessment? I think it's probably pretty accurate. I think the stance they took all along was irrational. It was very difficult to, it made negotiations very difficult. Uh, I think now that the internal market bill issue is resolved, which as Neil said, should never have happened in the first place. So I don't see it as any kind of compromise. I think it just has wasted an awful lot of time and an awful lot of negotiation space. So I think he is where he is and he didn't probably understand the process in the first place. He's not a de man of detail. But Ben, you know, if you can't do a deal with the European Union and if the British government can't be trusted to adhere to international treaties that it signed a year ago, what makes you think you'll be able to do deals with the United States or China or any other country in the world? Well, it, it, it seems you can trust the British government to honour its international uh, law treaties. What you can't um, expect them to do is not to threaten to break them, but they threaten it and then they back off which actually makes them look even more ridiculous than if they hadn't threatened it in the first place. But let's, you know, tr talking about trade, just stepping away from the internal market bill for a second, you know, you don't need a trade deal in order to trade. What you need is two parties having something that they wish to buy and sell. The biggest individual trading partner, and I'm talking about a country, not a block, the biggest in individual trading partner of both the European Union and the United Kingdom 
is the United States of America. And neither party has a trade deal. And we have a very happy trading arrangement. And that is because we've both got things that we wish to sell and buy from each other. Now, the problem that we have with the EU is that we run a massive trade imbalance with the European Union. The UK imports about 100 billion a year sterling terms, more than it exports to the EU. And that is a trade imbalance that we must correct. And it is correcting that trade imbalance that makes it so important that we regain control of our sovereignty. We don't enter into a level playing field so that we can look after British needs, British exporters and British trade. Neil, would you have sympathy with the British position on that? I wouldn't have sympathy with Ben's absolutist position because at the end of the day, the United Kingdom only produces 80% of the food that it needs. It doesn't produce all the medicines it needs and it's not going to produce foods like oranges. It needs trade with the EU and comparing the United Kingdom to the United but States isn't fair. trade the deal States, to trade. That's the point, Ben. The United <laughs> States is, of course, the world's largest economy and the EU doesn't trade with the United States in WTO terms. Only last week we had a new deal with the US between the EU and the US for lobsters. So to be honest, you don't need a trade deal, but it makes things a lot better. It makes the economy a lot better. And you have the absolute position of Ben and his acolytes like Nigel Farage and Richard Tice would drive misery and poverty on a British people that are suffering the well, worst totally economic disagree. contraction in over 300 years. And I've heard the position from Ben when he talks about Northern Ireland saying, there's no concern about the border, it's free or open. And then a year later, he's demanding that the border be sealed. To be honest, this sort of nonsense I that he's adding in of his absolute position deal. and I've heard it loads of times adds nothing to it but merely bigs him up in the domestic Ben business. do you want to respond to that well I, I think that, that that's completely wrong what I've just heard you do not need a trade deal to trade what you need is products you wish to buy and sell tariffs are levied on wholesale goods. They are a small fraction of the cost of trade. And the whole argument about tariffs has been completely um, taken out of all proportion. As far as the Irish border is concerned, there is a border on the island of Ireland. It separates Northern Ireland from the Republic of Ireland. And it exists and it separates two different currencies, two different corporation tax rates, two different VAT rates. And all that would be required is for some form of declarations and customs audits to take place for goods between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. There would be no necessity to breach the Good Friday Agreement, which, me, which says that there shouldn't be any military or security installations on the border. No one has ever suggested that. The whole Irish border issue has been hijacked by the European Union, and I'm afraid to say Ireland, in order to promote uh, their political aims without looking at the reality of the situation on the ground. And I just want to say, by the way, that the border down the Irish Sea is going to play much worse for the interest, the economic interests of Ireland than if the border had been between Northern Ireland and the Republic, the customs border had been between Northern Ireland and the Republic Explain of Ireland. Why you, you are going to have that? much great, you're going to have much greater difficulty using the bridge of Great Britain to get your goods into the European Union, which is the way the vast majority of your goods enter the European Union, you're going to have much greater problem with that border down the Irish Sea with all the extra logistical hassle of clearing goods before they cross that border than if we'd had the customs 
bordered down uh, b between Northern Ireland and Ireland. OK, Verona Murphy, you're a haulage specialist. What do you make of that argument? Well, Ben hasn't obviously kept up with her news and our many new ferries that have been launched and hopefully there'll be more news on that, which allows us to circumvent the Lambridge. So the goods that you'll be talking about are goods that are in for the UK market to be supplied into the UK. And that works both ways. For the 100 billion trade that Ben talks about, that's actually mostly foodstuffs coming into the UK with foreign hauliers. So there is need for a trade deal because to keep it on a competitive footing, that's how we deal within the EU. And the third country, Ireland will actually be used, the south of Ireland, as a third country for transit into Northern Ireland, although there won't be any regulatory checks. They'll have to, coming from the UK, have the same amount of paperwork as we would be required to have going through the UK on the Lambridge. So I think that's quid pro quo. I don't expect that we are going to have the difficulty circumventing the Lambridge because we have actively promoted new ferries into Ross Lair. Uh, I'd hope there'd be further announcements, but the difficulty I have is that government didn't promote that. Our own government okay, didn't promote Okay, but in the absence it. of a deal, and even if we do have an agreement, it seems, on the Northern Ireland Protocol, there still is the possibility there will not be a trade deal done. How much damage do you think would that do to business between these two islands? It'll do a lot of damage, but I think we have to look at it from a positive perspective that what Britain will lose its market share in the EU because of those tariffs, and I think that's where we can capitalise. We now have certainly increased capacity in rural ferries. That gets us to mainland market in real time without using the Lambridge. So we should capitalise on that. We should start to explore the beef that we will supply to the UK, try and possibly source new markets uh, in mainland Europe, uh, because the beef that goes from the UK into mainland Europe and the fish won't happen because of the tariffs. It's our opportunity. But what's real, what makes that opportunity real is the fact that we are increasing our direct ferry capacity, which gives us a route ex the UK. Neil, what about that argument that we heard from Ben that the Irish politics, our Irish government has been playing politics with the border, that effectively what we're doing here is a circuitous route to sort of break up the United Kingdom by creating barriers between Britain and Northern Ireland? No, it's absolute nonsense what the Irish government and indeed all our European partners have tried to achieve since the outset. And indeed, the British government have too, is to make, make sure that we meet the terms as a responsibility as co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. And that's ensuring no hardening of the border, be it customs checks or otherwise, between North and South. And Ben's notion it that somehow... It makes no mention uh, of customs checks. But if Ben's the notion, GSA makes no mention of customs checks. One second, Ben, we bring it back in. Ben's suggestion that somehow if that border had between, been between the Republic and the North, there'd be nothing east-west, there still would. Because at the end of the day, the EU has left, or the UK has left the EU. There still will be customs checks. There still will be veterinary checks. There still will be SPS checks. But the point Verona makes is so accurate. When, we, when the UK voted to leave the EU, 13% of our exports went to the UK. That's down to 9%. Last year alone, the Irish farmers sold 96 million euro worth of beef into China. That was only the second year they had the opportunity to sell into China. The opportunities that we have for direct shipping, not just to the continental European market, but we saw a couple of weeks ago, Nestle sending, sending baby formula from Rosler to Ostend, 15 days on a train into the Chinese market. Okay, Ben, you were previously a Brexit, a Brexit MEP. Did you envisage when you campaigned in the referendum four years ago that you wanted not just to be not part of the EU, but to be away from the single market, away from the customs union, but also to be in a position where you wouldn't want a deal with the European Union. 
I've never personally wanted to deal with the European Union. There's not a single bit of literature which you will find from me, either verbal or in written form, promoting the notion of needing a deal. The whole point about leaving the European Union, as far as I was concerned, was to leave its regulatory framework. And that means leaving without a deal, because the only way the EU will allow us to have a deal is by enforcing their EU state laws, their competition, environment, employment, tax laws, their demands on our territorial waters, and indeed their insistence that their Supreme Court rules over British courts in certain respects. All of that is unacceptable to me. I don't buy in at all to this notion that you have to have a free trade agreement to trade. And as we've just heard, Ireland is establishing very good trade relationships with China without a trade deal. And I'm delighted to hear it. You must be one of the very few countries in the world that are actually making any meaningful exports to China. It tends to be the other way around. So, uh, you know, you've just evidenced for me that you don't need that trade deal. We don't need it. In fact, in order to to balance the trade imbalance, in order to balance the trade imbalance with the European Union, we must have the right to levy tariffs if we need to on German cars, for example, the price of which are are artificially low because the euro is an artificially weak currency as far as German exports are concerned, brought down as it is by the southern rim economies of of the European Union. Verona, back to you. Do you think will a deal be struck? Do you get the sense that if Boris Johnson is going to Brussels for his meeting with Ursula von der Leyen tomorrow evening, that he wants to do a deal, despite all of the posturing over the last year, that he's prepared to walk away without one? The truth is I just don't know. Um, He has behaved very irrationally. Um, I'm not taking any of the signals in relation to the internal markets or Biden being elected in the US as a guarantee that there will be a deal. But I do think it's going to be very, very difficult. You know, as uh, we said earlier, Barney has been rising at four o'clock in the morning and the negotiating team ensuing all day meetings. And I just hope that they have the resolve uh, to make sure that any deal that is struck is not disproportionate to an island nation who has cooperated greatly and that our future would be secure in that. One final thing to you, Ben. If Boris Johnson does agree a deal in the next couple of days and commits Britain to it, how will Brexiteers like yourself react? Well, it depends, obviously, on the terms of the deal. But one thing I will say about the European Union is that it's been clear in its position from the start. And it's clear in the political declaration and indeed the Northern Irish Protocol precisely what it is that our government has signed up to. And the political declaration, which isn't legally binding, but is a heads of terms for a future arrangement, does unequivocally state that there will be fixed quotas for fish, Um, that there will be a level playing field based on EU law, such as it is at the end of the transition period, that the Court of Justice of the European Union will have say, ultimate say, over all aspects of EU law as far as the agreement goes. The European Union has been clear from the start. And what our government has singularly failed to do is actually read and understand what it was signing. It's either that or they've duped the whole British public in the Brexit promises they've made. Now, if they sign a deal, I am 
utterly certain that it will be along the lines of the political declaration, because the EU has been consistent throughout that it must be. And that, I think, not I think, that will be a complete breach of the manifesto pledges made by Boris Johnson on page five and pursuant to which he was given his 80-seat okay. majority. He will be selling the British people down the drain. Well, that would suggest we in Ireland might have been on the right side of this particular argument. Thank you very much, Ben Habib, for joining us. Also, Verona Murphy. Neil Thank Richmond you. is staying with us because after the break, Paul Colgan, the economics correspondent for Virgin Media News, will be looking at what a post-Brexit no-trade deal could mean for your pocket. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. Neil Richmond is still with us, but we're also joined by Paul Colgan, economics correspondent with Virgin Media News. I suspect, Paul, there are lots of people who have long been fed up with Brexit and the idea of trade deal, no trade deal, or sure they're more concerned about COVID-19. But if there wasn't to be a trade deal done in the next couple of days, would it be significant to our pockets here in Ireland? I think it certainly would be. It's kind of like trying to hit a moving target. It's an unprecedented event. It's very difficult to model what would happen in any given scenario. But the ESRI here at home, for example, has been looking at you know, what would happen if you applied these World Trade Organization tariffs to the food that we import from the UK into Ireland. And we import a lot of our food and a lot of our products. A lot of the products that people are familiar with on their supermarket shelves come from Britain, or the, at least the raw materials do. So, for example, the ESRI looked at things like cereal. We import a lot of cereal from the UK. Uh, a standard box of branded cereal, which is around €4, Euro at the minute, would be over €5. Euro. Tea and coffee, a lot of it also comes from Britain. Juices, uh, milk, cheese and eggs. Over 50% of our milk, cheese and eggs comes from the UK. So yeah, I think most people would think that we actually have all our own milk, cheese and eggs. And we don't have our own flour either, do we? No, a lot of that comes from the UK as well. So this is the thing that people don't necessarily appreciate when they think of the agri-food sector. We hear so much about what we export to the British in terms of beef and cheese. And whilst that is substantial and a lot of jobs depend on that, we also bring in a lot. And ESRI, for example, said by the end of the year, in a WTO scenario, you'd be paying about €1,400 Euro extra in your grocery bill alone. That's an enormous amount. For a lot of people. And... Uh, the British publish their own schedule of tariffs in the summertime, but they're not far away from what the original WTO tariffs were. But the flip side of this, and this is the reason why a lot of people think the British will ultimately do a deal, and Neil alluded to it earlier, is that they import a great deal of their food from the European Union. Four-fifths of, four of their food imports come from the European Union. So they reckon in a no-deal scenario, the tariffs they're talking about, in 85% of cases, they'd have to put up 
food prices by about 5%. But would they not be able to get their food from elsewhere? Is there not a concern, for example, for a lot of our meat exports that they will get their chlorinated chickens from the United States and get their beef from Brazil and ignore the Irish market? So the, the people in favour of Brexit would certainly argue that the, uh, the UK should look abroad for its food or it should become more reliant on its, its own domestic uh, food production. And I suppose the whole issue about chlorinated chicken and all that uh, fed into the, the, the problem with the border here. How were uh, the, the European Union to ensure that those sort of food products which didn't meet European standards didn't make their way into the single market through the island of Ireland? And then what about as well just imports of things that we need to re-export, components for manufacturing, for example? Well, this has been a massive headache for a lot of SMEs who rely on parts coming across the Irish Sea, uh, uh, which they have to reconfigure and, 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 and re-export. And this is the big concern I think the government has at this stage, that while the big multinationals are prepared for no deal and they don't necessarily trade at such a high degree with, uh, with Britain, that a lot of our SMEs do and they're highly dependent on supply chains uh, and they're highly dependent on the UK market. And there's a concern, I think, in government that many of them aren't fully prepared yet, that they're waiting to see what happens and they're crossing their fingers and they're hoping there won't be a no deal. And I think that's a, an issue that the government will, will want to get on top of. Over Neil, how could weeks. that be? I mean, if the government has been trying to tell businesses for years to get ready, why did the message not get across? Well, it's not necessarily the message. And Paul's right, your, your large company with 250 employees is able to appoint a Brexit liaison person or indeed a Brexit team or get in one of the big four accountancy firms. But if you've got a small company with three people and you're the, you're the MD, you're the head of accounts, you're the chief cleaner, and of course you then have to be the Brexit liaison office, it, it starts to get to the, the second level. So you may think, well, my supplier comes from Dunleary and then that's secure. But who's supplying your supplier? And what are your, then what is your logistics? If you're making sure that you can still export to the continent, are you looking at Hollyhead and going like, well, there's going to be a four or five hour delay there. Are my logistics firms going to be able to guarantee getting goods to market? So a lot of work has been done. And individually, I've been speaking to SME subgroups of various regional um, chambers of commerce. There's been huge campaigns by Enterprise Ireland, the IDA, but also all the main kind of banks and pillar banks to get through. Ultimately, we can never fully prepare for Brexit and a no deal scenario and that unknown on a macro level, of course, it leads to a big, there's a big difference between 2% 2, 2 GDP growth between deal or no deal, but it's really the micro level that's going to trip a lot of people up. Paul, how much store can we put in the political comments of recent days? Some people saying, oh, it's dreadful, there's not going to be a deal like Michel Barnier, the chief EU negotiator, Michal Martin being quite downbeat today, Simon Coveney being a little bit more upbeat. How much of this is real? How much of it is posturing? Um, I think from the European point of view, there's genuine concerns that they're running out of road and this is taking far too long and they didn't want to be in this position in the mouth of Christmas. And there's also an element that they want to manage expectations because there is still a real risk of a collapse of talks. And the cabinet were briefed on Monday that Monday, were briefed today that Monday was a critical day and the talks could have collapsed at one point. But I think optimism has again surged but, today from what we saw. But doesn't that always happen? Isn't there always in every major talks involving the EU this brinksmanship and all things are always going very badly, they're the worst, and then something gets solved in the end? Like we all remember what happened last year. We spent months and months agonising about Boris Johnson and what he was going to do and he was threatening to walk away and we were all fearing the cliff edge and then he went for his little walk in the garden with Leo Varadkar and within weeks we had a deal. And even when they got to Brussels and there was an expectation of a deal, there was last minute wobbles and jitters. 
but they still came through with one. We have about 30 seconds left, Neil. What do we have to do after this is all over to repair relations between Ireland and Britain? I think we need to invest, as I said, in the institutions, the Good Friday Agreement. We need to have our ministers meeting with British ministers on the same basis they would have met even when they were in the EU. Why? Is there a sense that that isn't happening at present? Well, at the moment, we have the luxury that our ministers meet our British ministers every month at European Council meetings and everything else. Those structures are gone. We can use the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference, the British-Irish Council, unlike any of the other 27 member states. And I think that has to be our priority, 1st of January. Would you ex think that there may be a change in position in the British once this is all sorted out, that they may soften the rhetoric that we've heard a lot of over the last four or five years? I really don't know, and I don't think so, given who's in government at the moment. OK, Paul Colgan, do you expect much change from the British? I don't know. If we, if we get a deal and we get over Christmas and they get their vaccine and, and life moves on, perhaps, but uh, the Tories have a big, uh, big majority in that country and it seems that they may well be in situ for a considerable period of time and a big part of that party uh, is hostile to, to, to Europe and the idea of Europe. That's all we have time for tonight. Thank you to Neil Richmond and Paul Colgan for being with us. A reminder that The Tonight Show is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back on radio tomorrow afternoon. Kira Doherty will be here tomorrow night at 10pm. For now, good night and stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.